We'll please take a copy of uh, the scriptures and turn with me once again to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, last Sunday, we started thinking about uh, the four names or the four titles that are ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And uh, we're going to continue to do that today. Um, you know, I think it's uh, correct to say that today, the way we choose names maybe differs a little bit from how they did in the scriptures. Today, we choose names perhaps to name a family member after a, a relative or because we like the, the meaning of the name or even just because we like how the name sounds. In the scriptures, however, naming is a bit more significant than that. Names tell us something about the identity and character or mission of the individual being named. And that's certainly true here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We're told that Jesus is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And today we're going to dwell on what it means that Jesus Christ is mighty God. But first, before we dive into that, let's uh, read this portion of scripture once again, Isaiah chapter 9, and let's read verses 2 through 7. Let's hear together God's word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. <clears throat> Well, like many of you, I'm sure, I, I love this time of the year. Uh, I love getting together with you and singing Christmas carols and celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ has come and will come again. I love the time with family and friends around the table. I love giving gifts. I think we all love receiving them as well. Uh, I love many of the traditions surrounding Christmas, but also if you're anything like me, you've, you've had this experience in realizing that Christmas also has a way of exposing uh, 
some of our vulnerabilities and disappointments in life. Uh, This time of the year has a way of pressing upon us the reality of the fact that we live in in a sad world and pressing upon us the the reality of our own shortcomings and perhaps our own failures. And so in the midst of a season where cheerfulness is almost mandatory, many people have heavy and hurting hearts. For some of us, we will deeply be missing people we love and we will keenly be feeling their absence this time of the year. For others of us, um, We could hardly think of something more stressful or anxiety-inducing than these seasonal family get-togethers. And so there's this tension, right? It's the Christmas season, a festive season on the one hand, and yet on the other there are these deep aches and hurts that haunt us, and many of us try to press them down and hide them away. And look, I want to say to you this morning, if you're if your life is nothing more than uh, tinsel and Christmas wrapping paper and that's all you've got to cover over those aches and pains, then Christmas is indeed going to be a very painful time of the year for you. It can be a painful reminder that, the, that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that life didn't go the way we thought it would, that disappointments erupted in our lives that we never expected. But this morning, as we turn our attention to the titles of Christ in Isaiah chapter 9, I want us to see that the Bible has something to offer us that is far more satisfying than a thin veneer of wrapping paper and make-believe and sentiment. There is real hope when the realities of life force us to come face to face with our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, and yes, our failures. You've noticed, I hope, the first six verses of Isaiah chapter 9, they they ring with a message of hope, don't they? Light will dispel darkness. Joy will overcome sorrow. And freedom will overwhelm Captivity. That's the message. And it all comes about because of verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So this stunning reversal in the lives of God's people pivots on the, the reality of the birth of this child, the son who is given. And so last week we asked the question, how can that be? How how can it be that the birth of a child would bring about and effect such a great reversal, such a transformation for the people of God? And I said that we have the answer to that question in Isaiah 9-6, in these four names, these four titles given to Christ. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Last week we thought about Wonderful Counselor. Today we're going to think about Mighty God. And and notice once again, there's two parts. Mighty God. Actually in the Hebrew, God 
comes before mighty. So we're going to take it in that order. Okay. So let's ask, first of all, what does the name mighty God tell us about Jesus Christ? And I think we have to, to say that very clearly, very straightforwardly, without qualification, God's word is telling us that Jesus Christ is God. (laughs) That's remarkable for a number of reasons, but it's remarkable uh, immediately in this text because in the very same verse that we're talking about here, we're also told that this one is a child who was born. You see that? A child who was born. Uh, He was a real human being. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, his his conception was in some ways, uh, his conception was miraculous, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but his, his birth was entirely ordinary. And he grew up to be a man, uh, a true human being, a true human being who is also identified as mighty God. Now, worth mentioning is the fact that in the Hebrew of verse 6, the word translated child actually literally means male child, not just child, which is interesting because it, it, it raises a question for us. Why, after identifying this child as a male child, does Isaiah then go on to say, a son who is given? Is this just a a Hebrew repetition to say the same thing in two different ways? Or is something more being said here? I think reading this verse in light of the whole counsel of God, we've got to conclude something more is indeed being said. Something about this child's sonship is being underscored and highlighted. Now, verse 7 gives us a little help to get us going. We're told that he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom, and of that kingdom there will be no end. Okay, so he's a son who will inherit the throne and the kingdom. He's a descendant of David with a right to the throne, and yet... This son is unique from all of the rest, from all of the other descendants of David. Because, of course, no other descendant of David is identified in these terms as mighty God. But that's precisely who this son is, who is given. So consider just one other Old Testament passage with me for a minute to, uh, to shed light on this passage. Consider Psalm 2, Psalm chapter 2. You know what we have in Psalm 2? A depiction of of humanity, a description of the nations of the earth and the kings of this earth conspiring together against the Lord and his anointed. And in verses 4 through 6, we have the response of of the Lord to that uh, rebellion of humanity. We're told he laughs. He's, he's, he's not shaken up by it. He's not disturbed by it. Their conniving does not thwart any of his plans for history. And in response to it, he says, As for me, I have set my king 
on Mount Zion, my holy hill. And so one of the signs that God is reigning in the midst of a fallen world is that he has established his king on Mount Zion. And in the very next set of verses, in verses 7 through 9, you have another speaker in the psalm. And it's the Lord's anointed. And the Lord's anointed says, I will tell of the decree. Uh, you are, the, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now remember, we've, we've used this language of begottenness this morning throughout our worship service. We've sung it and we've confessed it. It comes straight out of the Nicene Creed to distinguish between begottenness and createdness. The son's begottenness is an eternal begetting. He is begotten, not made. He's not a creature. And the church has read Psalm 2 that way with biblical warrant, as we'll see here in just a minute. But the son goes on to tell of the decree. The Lord, the father, says to his eternally begotten son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, so Psalm 2 tells us that the Lord has a son, a son begotten, not made. In other words, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Very God of very God. And this is the eternal son who was to be born as a child, the son who is given in Isaiah chapter 9. And so the Old Testament promises a savior king who will, who will come to reign and rule and heir to David's throne, who is the begotten son of God. And the New Testament, I, we could look at passage after passage to talk about this, but let me just take you to one. Because the New Testament tells us directly that this is referring to Christ. You can go to the beginning of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1. And the author of Hebrews begins by, by saying that long ago, at many times and in many ways, um, God spoke to his people through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Notice what Hebrews is communicating there, that the Son is not a created thing. It was through the Son that God created the world. And it goes on to say, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, that is the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about all that Hebrews is saying there. And just those, those few words. He is the Son of the Father. And the Son is the Father's word to us. He is the Father's revelation to us. He is the heir of all things. He created the world. He shares the same nature, the same substance, the same essence as 
the Father the same glory and power. And he's the heir of (coughs) everything that he's created. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then the reason I take us all through that, because right after that then, the author of Hebrews quotes, guess what? Psalm chapter 2 and says this is about Jesus Christ, God's incarnate son. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that's just one New Testament example, but friends, here's the point. The child that was born, Jesus the baby, born in an unremarkable way to an unremarkable family. This man with a real, true human nature, the same nature we all share, yet without sin. The descendant of David by natural descent. This same child is also the eternally begotten Son of God. One with the Father and the Spirit before all ages. He's the second person of the blessed Trinity. One God in three persons forever. So the child who is born, the son who is given, is mighty God. And you see, that's why it changes everything for God's people. That's why it's significant. That's why such a great reversal is accomplished for God's people who were walking in darkness, who were languishing in pain, who were suffering in captivity. The birth of the God-man changes everything. So come back to what I said at the start about our vulnerabilities and our disappointments and failures. We're often forced in profound ways to reckon with during holiday seasons like this. You know, again, when our culture is telling us that it's a time of the year to be merry and and bright. And perhaps the kind of escapism that we might might, uh, try to apply works for a time. But I think we'd all agree that as we get older and life goes on and the reality of life presses in more and more Upon us, it becomes harder and harder to pretend, doesn't it? There's no amount of Christmas spirit that can wish away our pain and our heartache, that can wish away our, our, our own moral failures. And friends, if the birth of Jesus were simply the birth of another king in a long line of kings, sure, I can see why maybe we would have a date in our calendar to commemorate his birth. But that's hardly a life-altering thing, isn't it? But you see, the birth of Jesus is not merely the birth of one more ancient king whose, whose appearance on the stage of history is worth, worth noting and then moving on from. This is not why we celebrate. We have come to understand that something truly extraordinary and life-changing has occurred. The baby born in true human nature is at the same time mighty God, one person in two natures. He is the Son 
who is both God and man, the divine son who took to himself a true human nature and was born as a child. And so here's the significance of the child born, the divine son who is given. Only this, only this, dear friends, can give us hope and speak peace to our troubled hearts. That God came for you in Jesus Christ. That God himself came for you. He didn't send another. He didn't send a, a, a mere angel. He didn't send an errand boy. He came himself in pursuit of you to seek and to save that which was lost. To call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To give you joy unspeakable in the place of painful sorrow. To set you free from bondage and captivity. Now, why does God do this for his people? That's a question worth asking. Why would God go to such great lengths to save his people? And at the end of the day, the truest answer to that question is because he loves us. He, he, he loves you, dear friend. Maybe, maybe we need to hear that in, in these terms, that mighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who rules over all things and who upholds the universe by the word of his power, loves you. And that is why he has come to rescue you, to redeem you. He I think this is one of the greatest Christmas texts in all of the Bible, a verse everybody knows, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son, the greatest gift ever given. So let me say to you, the the weak, the vulnerable, the, the hurting, the discouraged, those weighed down, heavy laden, the depressed, the guilty, the ashamed, all of you this morning, listen to the good news afresh. God so loves you that he gave you his son to bring you into his light, to give you his joy as the object of his redeeming love. And friends, the birth of Mary's boy is all the proof you need that God himself has come in the person of Jesus Christ. So you see, our, our message Yes, this time of the year, but all year, every Sunday, is not get your act together, clean yourself up, get it together, man. You know, do, a, do, do more, do, do better, look within yourself and follow your heart and everything will work out. That is not our message. Our message, in fact, is you, you are weak and needy. You are not sufficient on your own. You can't make it on your own, but praise God that he has come himself to be your all-sufficient Savior in Jesus Christ. And one day soon, he is coming again. And when he does, he will execute justice for his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The light will shine and the darkness will 
vanish forevermore. But in the meantime, I think we also need to hear this this morning. In the meantime, understand, beloved, that you you have his ear and you have his heart. And he will give you grace to sustain you and keep you. The, The babe of Bethlehem is the Lord your mighty God who has come for you. And the significance of that intensifies, I think, all the more when we consider the second term in this title, mighty. Not just God, but mighty God. And this word, it's actually the word for a man of valor, a hero in the time of war. I think the most literal, accurate translation is simply warrior. So that an accurate, literal translation of uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6 could say, uh, wonderful counselor, warrior, God. So what's being communicated here in this title? Why did God become man? Why was he born as a child, grown to be a man? God became man. Christ was born to go to battle for his people. To fight for you, to win a victory for you that you might share in his awesome victory over sin and Satan and death. So the Christmas story isn't cute and quaint, perhaps like some manger scenes painted out to be, and dare I say, even some Christmas hymns make it out to be. It was certainly not a peaceful event. Okay, so at the risk of striking a nerve here, think about Silent Night with me for a minute, okay? Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright, round young virgin, mother and child. I'll stop there. We know how the rest goes. I love the carol and look forward to singing it together on Christmas Eve. But when we sing that carol, Let's never forget that what's really going on in the birth of this child is the initiation of a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. That is why in the background you have wicked King Herod who's trying to slay all of the male infants in the town of Bethlehem because as a seed of the serpent... He is dead set on destroying the promised seed of the woman before he can grow up. That's really the backdrop here. It's Genesis 3.15. So think about Genesis 3.15 with me for a minute. After sin ruptures our fellowship with God and brought the curse upon all creation, God, God made a promise. Really, it was a curse announced to the serpent. <clears throat> he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so right at the beginning of everything, after sin entered the world, there is a divine promise of an age-long conflict reaching its climatic end in the conflict between the serpent himself and the promised seed of the woman. 
See, this promised seed, this child of Eve, will one day come and do what Adam should have done in the garden by trampling the serpent's head. See, mighty God took flesh in the person of the Son and came in the weakness of our humanity to suffer on the cross so that even as his heel was bruised, he was crushing the serpent's head and destroying the works of the devil. And if you're familiar with the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, you can't help but notice as you're reading through the gospels how intense the spiritual conflict was wherever Jesus went. Like there's there's a, a, a kind of demonic activity during the time of Jesus' life and ministry that is simply unparalleled in any other time of history. And yet if you pay attention, you'll see every confrontation beginning with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and, and on into the expulsion of the powers of evil and demonized people. Jesus again and again triumphs in every, every preliminary skirmish during his ministry. The Gospels are telling us that Jesus is the second Adam, is Christ the victor. He is a conquering king on the march, driving back the powers of darkness wherever he goes, because the kingdom of God is present where the king is. But of course, the, the satanic onslaught that came against Jesus reached its zenith in his betrayal, uh, in, his, um, in his trial, in his torture, and in his crucifixion. This, this was the decisive battle, the final confrontation. There, the, we, we can think about it in terms of the Genesis 3.15 imagery. There, the, the serpent sunk his fangs into the heel of the promised seed as Christ crushed the serpent. But step back for a minute, because from a worldly perspective, it, it certainly looked like defeat for Jesus, didn't it? As he, as he hung upon the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It looked like mission failure. But you see, what appeared to be failure was in fact the ultimate victory. Listen, listen to how Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 explains this to us. It talks about the incarnation and the reason the Son of God came. Okay, Hebrews 2 14. Christ came and partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why was Jesus Christ born a man? What did he come to do? To go to the cross, Hebrews 2.14 tells us. Why? To conquer. To fight for his people and to set them free from the tyranny of the devil. 
See, he is our warrior God who entered the conflict for us and secured the victory for his people in the most unexpected way by laying down his life and in doing so, disarming the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. Colossians 2.15. Last week, we we sang one of my, my favorite Christmas hymns. You guess what it is? One of my favorite Christmas hymns, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Dates back to the 5th century. The reason I love it is not because it's an ancient hymn. The reason I love it is because of the words that it puts upon our lips. And In the third verse, we sing, Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way. So there's this militaristic tone here. Come to do battle. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spread its vanguard on the way as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. It's a beautiful, beautiful hymn reminding us this is why he came. That the powers of hell may vanish And the powers of darkness clear away. As John puts it in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, so what? You might be thinking. So what what does this mean for us? You know, friends, I'm always finding myself giving thanks for how honest Jesus is with us. Never never's trying to sell us anything. And you remember that in John chapter 16, as he's talking to his disciples before his departure, he, he tells them, you will have trouble in this world. He's telling them that as a result of being my disciple, of being one of my followers, it's actually going to create more more trouble in your life than you otherwise would have experienced. On top of the the trials that that believers and unbelievers share as the result of living in a fallen world, groaning under the curse, there are the additional trials and difficulties brought on by being a follower of Jesus Christ. But then Jesus says to his disciples, "Take heart." Now, if you just poured out your heart to somebody, your concerns, your anxieties, your heartache, and they looked at you and just simply said, take heart, we, we'd all understandably sympathize if you're upset, right? But of course, that's not all Jesus said to his disciples. He said to his disciples, take heart, for I have overcome the world. In other words, he's assuring his disciples, I've secured the victory for you. I have entered into the conflict and triumphed. Take heart in your struggles and suffering. Take heart in your anxieties and fear. Take heart in your disappointments. Yes, life will be hard. There will be troubles and disappointments along the way. 
And dwelling sin will try to trip you up. The world will try to have you. The devil will try to devour you. But Jesus Christ has fought for you. And he is the victor. He has overcome. That's what Isaiah chapter 9 is is summarizing for us here. Our mighty God, our warrior God, Jesus Christ, is our conquering king. And so now, if, if, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, it means you can say with the Apostle Paul, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because his victory is our victory. And so let the world do its worst because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are totally secure Not because we are good or strong or wise or self-sufficient, but because Jesus Christ has fought for his people. Because he is God come down to pursue us. Because he came himself to fight for us. We know that we are loved. Because he is mighty God, our warrior God who fights for his people at the cost of his own life, we know that we are perfectly secure. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. You see, we're not strong, we're not wise, we're not sufficient on our own. We are are living in darkness. We are the people suffering in anguish. We are the people held in bondage and captivity, needing to see the light, needing a a joy that we do not possess in and of ourselves and needing to be set free from captivity. And we have all of that, dear friends, precisely. We have that in Jesus Christ, our mighty God. So let's praise God for the gift of his son who is revealed to us as God, our warrior. And so today, if if you're weary If you're worn out, if you're grieving, if you're guilty and ashamed, if you're dreading the next week, this week to come, there is, my friends, a source of comfort and grace. And it's found in Jesus Christ. Go to him, our wonderful counselor and our mighty God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes we are, we are content to put a smile on our face and put on a veneer of cheer when in fact our hearts are hurting. We pray that we would turn away from escapism and find in Christ Jesus, our mighty God, the comfort and the grace and the consolation that we need. Thank you for this wonderful text in your word, which shows us who Jesus Christ is. And I pray that by faith, each one of us would know the joy of possessing Jesus Christ as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. We pray these things in his name. Amen.